This episode contains descriptions of domestic violence and spousal abuse. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Welcome back to Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. So far, we've heard from those who were sent away by their parents, either through a referral from an educational consultant, a psychiatrist, or their school. But these private placements are only the tip of the iceberg. The troubled teen industry is just that, an industry. And the United States population of wards of the state, like foster youth, juvenile delinquents, and victims of family violence, present an opportunity for the TTI to fill more beds and make more money. Because records are poorly maintained and no studies have been conducted, it's impossible to say what percentage of kids in the TTI are there because of court placements. But while the vast majority of media attention has focused on private placements, there is a proportion of kids in the TTI who are sent there against their parents' will, without their parents' consent, or in the absence of parents at all, through the juvenile justice system and by family courts, by way of something known as the alienation defense. The issue was more of a human rights aspect. Um, kids are torn away from their primary parents, taken away from their community, school, extended family. It's very disruptive, and there's no clear evidence that it's going to help them. Uh, there, there's no good research. So it's flawed from a human rights perspective. This is Dr. Peter Jaffe, a psychologist, professor, and the director emeritus of the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children. He specializes in issues that bring children and families into the justice system and has co-authored 10 books and over 80 articles related to the role of the justice system in protecting minors. With decades of experience in the court system, Dr. Jaffe now focuses on education for judges and justice professionals on domestic violence prevention and assessment. Dr. Jaffe has testified in, studied, and consulted on innumerable cases in family court the branch of the court system that handles cases involving domestic issues like divorce, custody, and parenting arrangements. The primary focus of Dr. Jaffe's research is the alienation defense, a fraught yet prevalent concept in the court system, especially the family courts. This defense, the name for which was first coined by child psychiatrist Richard Gardner nearly 40 years ago, is one of the reasons that kids find themselves locked away in residential treatment facilities, therapeutic boarding schools, group homes, and wilderness therapy. It started in the 1980s with a psychiatrist named Richard Gardner who labeled parent alienation syndrome. And there's now a new generation of people who have taken on that term and have lobbied government. They've, they've lobbied the American Psychiatric Association to include it as a diagnosis in, in the DSM. They've also lobbied the World Health organization to include it in the classification of diseases. Typically, the defense of alienation syndrome is used in court after one parent, usually the mother, makes a claim of abuse against the other parent, usually the father. This can range from physical abuse to emotional abuse, financial abuse, and controlling behavior. The parent making an abuse claim is usually the parent with whom the child feels the safest, sometimes called the preferred parent. Once this claim is levied, the accused will issue a counterclaim, not only denying the abuse, but also claiming that the preferred parent is brainwashing the child by convincing them that the abuse occurred in order to alienate them from the accused. The father can't look in the mirror and say, I was never around. When I wasn't around, I was yelling at everybody. I was threatening. 
And no wonder the kids don't want to spend time with me. They can't see that. The idea is that the preferred parent has fabricated or overblown an abuse claim in an attempt to retain custody of the children and turn the court against the accused. They turn themselves into the victim and say, well, I'm a, a good guy and I'm a victim of this evil woman who turned the kids against me. Though alienation as a quote-unquote syndrome is nothing but pseudoscience, courts will often recognize it as truth. That not only are the claims of abuse false, but that the preferred parent has also indoctrinated their child into believing that the accused is unsafe. There are extreme groups that have taken the alienation because it's a Trojan horse into the court system, and it confuses judges, especially fathers who make a good first impression of them. Poor innocent guy, suddenly the kids don't want to see him for no reason. Levying a claim of alienation syndrome is a sneaky way to dismiss abuse claims and color the court's opinion. This claim not only attempts to absolve the accused from abuse allegations, but also flips them around. By brainwashing their kids, the accuser becomes the abuser. Though children in these cases will often corroborate the claims of abuse, telling the courts that they feel unsafe with the accused and would prefer the safe parent to have custody, claims of alienation syndrome ensure that their cries are tainted by the belief that the children are victims of brainwashing. We're, we're now living in a war zone in the family court. People equate alienation with child abuse. They don't have a good relationship to part of child maltreatment. Especially if the accused has the money and resources to hire quote-unquote experts to testify on their behalf, courts are often convinced. And once a custody or abuse case successfully levies the alienation defense, the pipeline to the TTI begins. It's not hard to get there. All you need is a parent to say, I have a terrible relationship with my son or daughter. And that is only because the other parent has turned that child against me for no good reason. I've done nothing wrong. I used to have a good relationship, but now they refuse to see me, and I think the other parent has done it. I'm asking the court to make a finding of parental alienation. In most cases that come before a family court, the judge's priority is to repair the child's relationship with both parents, no matter if one presents a danger to the child and the family. The judge also removes parental rights from the parent that you're aligned or attached with and is now giving parental rights to the parent that you're alienated from. Enter reunification camps. The judge makes the order for you to go there. Generally, you're, you're having no contact with the parent who was the alienator, and you're cut off for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, while you reestablish relationship with the, with the other parent. There's a protocol where the kids are picked up. They're often picked up against their will, which is another very complicated and potentially traumatic intervention. And then they're supposed to be spending time uh, playing horseshoes, reading, playing games, you know, reattaching, reconnecting, reuniting. I mean, it's called reunification therapy. You're getting to know a parent that you apparently hated for no reason, getting to know them over again. Court-ordered reunification camps are themselves similar to TTI facilities, but instead of kids being cut off from their whole families, they are cut off from their safe parent and forced to interact with their abuser. At reunification camps, so-called deprogrammers convince children that the abuse never happened, that their safe parent has indoctrinated them, even that their safe parent could go to jail, lose contact entirely, or send them into foster care. I mean, you, you look usually places in a rural community, remote. The fundamental premise is that the children who are sent there are 
being deprogrammed from a cult they belong to. You know, the, the cult of their mother who allegedly hated their father for no reason. And so they've been brainwashed. So therefore, they're now going to spend quality time with their father, in this example. Transported against their will to a program in a rural area, a no-contact order with their preferred parent, counterproductive therapy. Sound familiar? It's taking kids, traumatizing them in a way they'll never be the same. And what they've done is taken children who they deemed to be alienated from their father, and now they have alienated them from their mother. With courts throughout the U.S. legitimizing the idea of alienation syndrome, the industry of reunification programs took off. Much like the TTI, they repackage harmful and antiquated tactics and leave children and families traumatized. What's strange to me is that we we did away with something called status offenses in the 1970s and 80s. In the old days, kids came to juvenile court if they were truant from school or if they were seen as unmanageable. We, we sent those hard-to-manage kids to a training school, reform school, which is like a residential school. So you're living there, you have teachers there, you're being retrained to obey adults in authority. Those were all disbanded. The, the laws changed. The higher court said, you cannot do that to young people. I think it's, uh, it's unbelievable that now here we are many years later and we're violating children's rights by removing them from their home and the the parents that they're closest to uh, because they have a poor relationship with the other parent. Though reunification programs are often shorter than TTI programs, the concepts of forced therapy and removal from safe family are shared between the two and cause similar trauma and harm. Like the methods of the TTI, the methods of reunification therapy are not backed up by evidence, and many experts believe them to be harmful. That's a sad situation. I mean, obviously, we love children to have a great relationship with every parent, but that's not the way relationships work. And sometimes uh, children have bad relationships with one or both parents for a whole host of reasons. But to take away their freedom just seems like an extreme measure that's going to do more harm than good. It is from reunification camps that some children find themselves in secondary placements in the troubled teen industry. The reunification industry and the TTI have many overlaps, not only in concept and practice, but also in perpetrators. The transporters that take kids to reunification programs when they aren't police are the same companies that take kids from their beds and take them to TTI programs across the country. Remember AMATS, the trade organization for transport agencies from Episode 2? Their companies also assist in reunification transport. The only difference is that instead of both parents sanctioning the kidnapping and watching from the sidelines, it is done against the child and their safe parents' will. There are fathers who also get a hold of this because it also has implications for financial support. Because if you have the kids half the time in most jurisdictions, it means you're paying less child support because you're raising the kids as an equal partner. The financial costs of arguing and proving alienation and of defending against an alienation claim are high. But a successful alienation defense can mean a reduction in future child support payments. In many domestic abuse cases, fathers have access to more resources and experience less public shaming as a result of the dispute and are thus able to levy an effective alienation defense that lands their children with them, the abuser, in reunification therapy. And like troubled teen programs, reunification programs are not cheap. 
In cases of referral through the family court, the cost of reunification camp comes out of the parents' pockets. The good thing or the bad thing, depending on your perspective, these programs are expensive, and so not everybody can, can afford them. So therefore, you have to have some means to be able to afford a lawyer and an expert to convince the court about the business of liberty, and then you have to be able to, you know, to pay for the program. Most of the ones that I'm familiar with are, you know, the, the parents are paying. But for the troubled teen industry and the pipelines that lead into it, money is money, whether it comes from a parent or from the state. The industry is opportunistic and capitalizes on the scarcity of state-funded resources, like the lack of placements for the nation's foster children. That might be an example of where the state is funding it, depending on the jurisdiction and the funds they have available. The state can potentially pay for that placement if there's, if there's costs attached. Many survivors remember peers in the troubled teen industry who were not sent by either of their parents, who did not have parents at all. While any experience in the TTI is harrowing, foster youth are even more vulnerable and have fewer advocates and supports than children whose parents played a part in their being sent away. Foster kids may not have the same advocates as parents, that they're dependent on the state. I and mean, if they're depending on the jurisdiction, if they're awarded the state, they could be directed by their worker or the child protection system, whoever's their guardian, uh, to do this. Not only the court system, but also the child protection system is in league with the TTI. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there are nearly 400,000 children in foster care in the United States, and finding placements for all of them is quite literally impossible. Federal law mandates that the placement of foster youth into shelters, families, or homes should be in, quote, the least restrictive, most family-like setting available, end quote. But available is the operative word. State law varies, and it falls upon individual states and their courts to make decisions on the placement of a child. This means that many foster kids find themselves in congregate care, often in the troubled teen industry. If a foster child, I think you, you're going to have less advocacy just because you're, you're part of the system. So I, I think they would have less of a voice compared to uh, somebody that has wonderful parents able to advocate for them and also monitor what's happening and visit them. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families published a brief analyzing the use of congregate care in the foster system. It begins, quote, there is consensus across multiple stakeholders that most children are best served in a family setting. Stays in congregate care should be based on the specialized behavioral and mental health needs or clinical disabilities of children. It should be used only for as long as it is needed to stabilize the child or youth so they can return to a family-like setting. End quote. Though the HHS brief found a decrease in the use of congregate care for foster kids since the early 2000s, it showed that 14% of the foster care population still found themselves in congregate care facilities. The average length of stay in such programs was eight months, and those children who spent time in congregate care also spent an average of seven more months in foster care overall than children who were not sent to congregate care facilities. About half of the 51,000 children aged 13 or over who entered foster care in 2008 were sent into congregate care at some point, and about a quarter were sent there as a primary placement. Overwhelmingly, foster children who are sent to congregate care were those with behavioral problems, physical and mental disabilities, and mental illness diagnoses. 
those with behavior problems and mental illnesses were significantly more likely to have been through multiple placements both prior to and following their time in congregate care and were less likely to find a permanent home. It's the system gone mad. I mean, the, the system is broken. And the, uh, the system has made an enormous problem, an enormous cost for everybody. Even as more survivors begin to speak out, finding stories of those placed by the state is difficult. I tried for many months to connect with any TTI survivors who had been placed into the industry through the family court or foster care system to no avail. This confirms what Dr. Jaffe is saying. The kids who get lost in the system, whose abusers or whose government sends them away, have no voice. Their outcomes are often even more heartbreaking than those who come into the TTI by way of private placements, and the solution to these pipelines is more complicated. Foster children are sent away on the state's dime and are often forgotten shortly thereafter. Another instance where stays in the TTI can be funded by the state is by way of referrals from the juvenile justice system. Wilderness programs or residential treatment facilities, they would be funded as licensed mental health centers, you know, through the correctional services as a program for young people in trouble with the law. In the cases we've seen so far, educational consultants, social workers, and justice professionals emphasize that placement into the TTI is not intended to be a punishment. In most cases, it's couched as an intervention or a resource that's in the child's best interest. Even Diane, the educational consultant who encouraged our fictional mother Nancy to send her daughter Ella to wilderness therapy in episode one, was clear that Ella should not feel as though she were being punished. Not that we are punishing you, we are worried, oh, you know, it's not a punitive thing, it's just you are seriously concerned about her state of mind and her, her mental health. Even if Ella was being sent away as a result of behavioral problems, the language used with Nancy was careful not to call it a punishment. Discipline, perhaps, or a consequence, but never a penalty. This changes in the juvenile court system, where the TTI is quite literally the punishment for a crime. Again, there is no data on the number of juvenile delinquents sentenced with a TTI placement. Anecdotally, however, minors convicted of crimes are often sent away as an alternative to being placed in juvenile detention, or when a judge believes the teen or child would benefit from mental health or behavioral intervention. In the juvenile justice system, TTI placements are often used in complicated cases. Cases where the child may truly benefit from intervention of another kind, or where their behavior issues are seen as more salient than the crime they've been convicted of. It might be a last resort, that other things have been tried and haven't been effective. In some cases, you know, they're obviously the legitimate referrals and someone's sent to a children's mental health center, youth mental health center, you know, somebody's presenting with serious depression and anxiety and acting out behavior. Dr. Jaffe says these more nuanced cases present an extra challenge for a sentencing judge. And troubled teen industry programs seem like the middle ground solution between a slap on the wrist and juvie time. There, there are cases where the court has a legitimate concern about a young person, and they present sort of a, a mixed picture. It, it's, it's easier if you just have mental health problems, then you can go to a mental health center. Or if you're just antisocial, then they can decide to lock you up in a correctional facility. These are situations where judges are seeing a mix of both things, where a young person appears to be out of control, but they also have mental health problems. So judges want them in a safe and secure setting where they can also get the help that they need. 
maybe a wilderness experience where they think that they're in nature and having to survive, that, that experience will, will turn their life around. And so those, those programs certainly sound very attractive, and, and some of those are more likely a, a last resort. You can hear empathy in his voice here. Dr. Jaffe believes that sending children and teenagers to reunification camps and troubled teen facilities is misguided, and much of his work focuses on educating justice professionals about the detriments of congregate care and what alternatives are more appropriate. Nonetheless, his experience in the system has lent him an understanding of the plight of justice professionals, caseworkers, and social workers who do send kids into reunification camps and the troubled teen industry. I understand what motivates judges. Judges aren't evil per se. Uh, what, what motivates a judge is they're frustrated by the situation. By and large, judges mean well. Their end goal is an idealistic one, one that is shared by the families they work with and the system at large. Make everyone happy. Make every relationship healthy. Make every family whole again. Judges in family court want children to have a good relationship with both parents. And when they hear that's not happening, and there may have been repeated efforts for family counseling or other interventions. And the years go by and judges get frustrated that they can't find a remedy. So this is sort of an extreme measure that they feel they have the authority to order. Systemic issues within the family court, foster care, and justice systems have led to a chronic and worsening lack of resources for the most vulnerable children. And the troubled teen industry is excellent at presenting itself as a solution. Just as it preys upon parents with deceptive marketing tactics, the industry markets itself to mental health professionals, social workers, and state employees with lofty promises, purported experts, flawed science, and alluring imagery. Dr. Jaffe's description of how judges come to believe in reunification camps and the TTI is nearly identical to how survivors and parents say the industry wooed them. When judges order, they realize they maybe do something that's, that's harmful. They've usually been led down this path by an expert that says, here's a problem and here's the answer, and, and here's a, a private agency that can provide the solution. The TTI has expertly sold itself as a catch-all solution. For the most part, the programs are privately run. So it's an industry. Somebody opens a service and advertises and promotes it. They have websites and they have articles that purport that they have something important to offer and it works. I think their advertising isn't directly to judges as much as it is to psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers who are involved in doing court assessments. They might present at an annual meeting of mental health professionals, or they go to a you know, workshop with people doing uh, child custody evaluations. So I, I think that the link is to those professionals who are doing the assessments. Sequel Youth and Family Services, who we talked about in Episode 6, is one of the largest youth facility operators in the United States and brings in more than $200 million annually from its schools. Much of that money comes from federal, state, and local programs. CEQA representatives frequent conferences to promote their programs to judges, probation officers, social workers, school safety professionals, and attorneys. According to a 2020 NBC special report, CEQA even gave state employees all-expenses-paid trips to tour its company's facilities. In an email to a child welfare official, a sequel marketing agent is quoted as saying, it's part of what we do. It's no wonder these programs look appealing, that judges and state employees see them as a solution, especially if they're numerous and easily accessible. Some jurisdictions have more of these programs. You're also going to find judges more likely to use it. You have a person a hammer and everything looks like a nail. 
if you have a, a remedy available and it's close by, there's easy access, there's someone who's going to come to court to tell you it's, it's, a, it's a great idea, it's more accessible, I think that would also be a factor. This is particularly true in Utah, where the sheer number of TTI facilities makes placing children in congregate care an accessible solution to supposed misbehavior. Utah is the perfect state for a TTI program for a few reasons. First, there's its basic geography. It's easy to open a facility in the middle of nowhere in a state that has, well, a middle of nowhere. Utah is sprawling, and many areas of the state are relatively sparsely populated. The further you're away in a rural remote area, there's less accountability. You know, if you're an hour away and you can visit easily, it's much easier for a parent to monitor and review what's happening and then revoke consent potentially. TTI programs aim to separate kids from the outside world, and doing so also helps the programs avoid prying eyes. In Utah, anyone can easily and cheaply purchase a chunk of land in a remote area or find a bit of wilderness to use. This applies to other states, too. Idaho, Colorado, Montana, Arizona, Kansas. You know, all the big square ones in the middle. Survivors often cite the remoteness of their programs as one of the most daunting parts of being sent away. The long drive or flight to the middle of nowhere. The knowledge that running away would be physically impossible. The fact that, in a very literal way, no one can hear you scream. Caroline Cole, now an activist and co-host of the podcast Trapped in Treatment, was sent away to a remote facility in Idaho. It's terrifying when you're being sent to these places because then you're 180 miles from the closest town. I remember at the facility that I went to, I think we were about 100 miles from the closest Walmart. So we're looking at places like Idaho and in places that are just a little bit more rural. I think there's also the issue that, you know, these programs really don't want eyes on them. And so they're going to go places that feel a little more remote and that are away from activity and people. And it, it really kind of contributes to that issue and it insulates the facility from any kind of criticism. It's not only cheap and plentiful land that these states have in common. If I was a researcher, I'd certainly have a strong hypothesis that the more progressive the state, the more there's a respect for children's rights, the less likely kids are going to be sent away. For the most part, it's conservative states with philosophies of minimal regulation, small government, and parents' rights, where the TTI originated and continues to proliferate. I, I don't have the data state by state, but I would make a general comment that it's harder to do this to kids in a state where children's rights and voice are respected. So in, in many states, uh, it's easier to get access to a lawyer. And if you appear before the court and say, before you do anything, you know, this young person has rights, they need independent counsel. In states that have more progressive legislation and respects young people's rights, the laissez-faire approach to regulation in states like Utah make opening treatment centers alarmingly easy. According to Utah Code 62A-2-108, some behavioral programs must have a license, but that license is not hard to obtain. One behavioral health software provider even published an article titled, Considering Licensing an Addiction Treatment Center in Utah? You're in for a treat. With just a policy manual, a business license, a fire inspection, insurance, and the names of the program's owners and directors, you can fill out the application in less time than it takes to wait in line at the DMV. 
After a brief site visit from the state to verify compliance, your program is up and running. So this is also why we see a predominance of these programs being in red states. There is a conservative ideology of having small government, having very relaxed regulation, and not having government get in the way of private business. And though licenses are required for some types of treatment facilities, namely those for addiction, certain kinds of facilities are exempt from this requirement entirely. These include federal programs, correctional programs, private practice counseling, hospital facilities, and boarding schools. Pretty much anybody can open a teen treatment facility in Utah, a fact that has resulted in staff from maligned programs opening up their own facilities, regardless of their qualifications, and taking the philosophies and practices of their previous programs along with them. You can almost make like a a literal map of, okay, this person was a dorm parent, he then went on to create these programs. And then this person was a janitor. And then he went on to, you know, open these programs. And then those people go on to, I mean, it's just, it's incredible how it spreads. And I think it also says something about the level of education required to run a program. Because if you can just be a dorm parent one day, and then all of a sudden open up your own operation the next day, uh, it's like, uh, maybe you need some more qualifications, you know. With a low startup cost and minimal licensing and qualification requirements, states like Utah are a playground for anybody looking to make money off of congregate care. Plus, programs in red states can benefit from religious exemptions, like more lax licensing requirements and oversight. Religious institutions also do not fall under the purview of the Department of Social Services. I think we have to look at the cultural values of most folks who are from Utah. There's a strong Mormon conservative value framework that is in that state. And so that's part of it, is those Mormon conservative values in Utah. Broad religious exemption laws exempt individuals, churches, nonprofits, and some corporations from state laws that they believe go against their beliefs or prevent them from free exercise of their religion. Anyone operating in child welfare services, medical care, or private businesses can seek targeted religious exemptions, allowing them to refuse to place foster children with LGBTQ couples or refuse medical care to LGBTQ people. Florida, for example, passed a law nearly 40 years ago that eliminated government oversight of children's homes under the pretense that such regulation interfered with their religious beliefs. A 2013 investigation by the Tampa Bay Times found that many of Florida's religious children's homes were not overseen by the state, but by a private nonprofit run by the operators of the homes. Some homes had even lost their exemptions and were operating with no accreditation at all. The article says, quote, Today, virtually anyone can claim a list of religious ideals, take in children and subject them to punishment and isolation that verge on torture so long as they quote chapter and verse to justify it, end quote. Conservative Christian ideals are especially prevalent in Utah, where nearly 70% of the state's population is Mormon. The ideals of Utah's Mormon population are seen throughout the state. Utah is, for example, home to Brigham Young University, named after the second president of the Mormon Church, and a loophole in the state's laws allows for a legal union between a man and two simultaneous wives, a practice approved and sometimes encouraged by the church. Caroline traces the origins of the TTI back to Provo Canyon School, an infamous and long-standing Utah TTI facility. She calls Provo the epicenter of the industry, 
with its staff having founded many more facilities in Utah and elsewhere since Provo opened its doors in 1971. The industry really originated in Utah, and I think that also kind of means that they're probably going to be more willing to appeal to parents who want their child to be polished and pristine and no swearing and no smoking and no experimenting with drugs or listening to rock and roll music. She says the heavy influence of Mormonism in Utah made its way into Provo's practices and thus seeped into the industry as a whole. They kind of, you know, have this image of what they want their child to be and do and and look like. For many parents, it's not Mormonism specifically that makes the industry seem appealing. The appeal of religion as a part of the program's philosophy, like Caroline said, is the structure that it offers, the homogeneity of its population, who are united around a common set of ideals. But underlying religious philosophies and laws that allow religion to be used as a loophole present consequences even more severe for the LGBTQ community, an umbrella under which many kids in the TTI fall. The states that are the most friendly to TTI programs and operations are also the most unfriendly to queer people, and both covert and overt remnants of religious philosophies in TTI programs lead to pervasive homophobia and transphobia. Next time on Gund. I was sent there because I was gay, and so I was sent specifically for conversion therapy. It was in Utah, and it was run by Mormons. Staff that worked there were Mormon. The owners were Mormon. It was not advertised as a religious program, but when everybody in charge of you has the same values, that ends up being put into the program. Conversion therapy is very much alive and well. It just doesn't look like the media narrative of what conversion therapy is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. For bonus and behind-the-scenes content and early access to episodes, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gund wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.